Welcome to the Passing Judgment Podcast. This is a podcast for you, people who are curious about politics and the law and how the biggest political and legal issues of the moment affect you. I'm your host, Jessica Levinson. I'm a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, and I hope you'll pull up a chair and join me and a rotating cast of experts, including journalists, politicians, political scientists, lawyers, as we talk through some of the most important issues of our time. We're going to tackle things like, is the Constitution in crisis? What are the laws of our democracy? How are they changing? And what does that mean for your daily life? I hope you'll listen, provide us with some feedback, and enjoy the time that we can spend together. On this episode of Passing Judgment, we're joined by Carla Marinucci, a senior writer for Politico's California Playbook, who has been consistently named one of California's leading political writers, and for the last two years has also been honored as the state's top digital influencer in political reporting. Before launching the Politico California Playbook in 2015, Carla was a senior political writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, And that's actually when I met her. Carla has covered six presidential elections, seven California gubernatorial elections, including the historic recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger. In 2013, Carla was honored by the Society of Professional Journalists with a Lifetime Achievement Award for her coverage of California politics. Carla Marinucci, thank you so much for joining us and passing judgment with us. It is so exciting to be with you, Jessica. I'm honored to be a guest on the podcast. California is a great place to cover politics, as you know. And whether you've got, you know, L.A. drama, as as is going on right now, or Sacramento drama, it's always fun to uh, to compare notes with you. How did you, uh, this is something I've never asked you, how did you first decide to go into journalism? Um, believe it or not, I can thank Angela Davis for that <laughs> because uh, I, you know, I, I came from a working class family. Neither of my parents went to college. Uh, you know, immigrant uh, Sicilian family. Uh, we had a you know, pizzeria in Jersey City. I pretty much might have ended up as uh, you know one of the Jersey Shore type people, except we moved to California, and I had a great high school teacher who told me. Um, you know, you can do this. You can be the editor of the high school paper, which seemed like an incredibly, you know, big dream to me. But um, he sent me to cover the Angela Davis murder trial in San Jose, which I did. She was uh, in 1971. This is how long I've been doing this. Um, she was on trial for murder, kidnapping in San Jose. Um, I, I attended that trial. I covered it every day. And it was a uh, it was a moment for me because I realized you could have a front row seat to history uh, with with reporting, and that was I think the a turning point for me. From then on, I was completely hooked, um, and went on to you know I, I I did a lot of traveling. I I spent about uh, two years around backpacking around South America and going, uh, you know, traveling the Andes and so forth, but did, did uh, reporting from there and then came back here and began on, on small newspapers. It wasn't, I have to say it wasn't easy getting into reporting because 
this is also how long I've been doing this. When I first applied for a job at the Pleasanton Times, which was my first paper, I was told they weren't hiring women to cover news. So did I want to be a society and bridal writer, which is what I did to get my foot in the door. So yes, I'm a former society news writer as well. <laughs> you know, we could end the podcast here and I would be happy. I never, I never knew that. And let's just remind everybody that wasn't actually that long ago when really well-qualified women were being told, oh, we have a secretarial position or you can cover, you know, yeah. essentially style. Yeah, that's, um, that's right. Weddings. That's what I did for, for the first part. And, and you're right. It wasn't that long ago when those doors were shut to women. And when I first started covering news, um, I mean, one of the first big news stories I covered was the Patty Hearst kidnapping. And um, I mean, yeah, I, we're, we're, there were very few women. And then when I got into politics writing, it was even worse. Oftentimes you were the only woman in the room. Um, asking questions. It, so, so you're right. There have been a lot of changes uh, in a very few years uh, when it comes to journalism. And now I have to say there's a crop of amazing women who are political journalists who uh, know you and thank you for paving the way. I mean, I've, I've heard people say that before. What was it like to be the one female journalist? Did people kind of try and make sure that they got to your question or was it the opposite? It was, it was so intimidating when I first got into political journalism, that was at the examiner uh, where Phil Bronstein, our editor gave me the opportunity. Um, you know, he sent me to Russia to cover the, the, the downfall of the Soviet union in 1991. And um, then we started covering politics. And in the beginning I was very, I, I was intimidated. There was a lot of, mansplaining going on in the job there was a lot of asking questions and and it was one of the areas where i really learned you've got to push yourself up to the front of the pack and you've got to yell louder than anybody else to get your question in and that has been my my tip to any young journalist i've i've ever talked to or intern uh in terms of how to handle you know, group events and big scrums. It is, it is about being nice to people. Uh, and I have to say, um, it's always better to be kinder to people and to make friends in the business, within the business. You never know when people are going to help you. But in terms of getting questions in, and especially to politicians who don't want to answer them, you can't be afraid to run after them, to pursue them, to get to the front of the pack and to, yell your question louder and most insistently than anyone else. And almost always you will get an answer. So it was good training in a lot of ways. Um, and I think for a lot of women, that's what we've all learned to do. That I have seen you do versions of that actually. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's incredible to watch. We were at, as you alluded to, we were at a um, presidential debate together and there was one of the candidates, I won't name who, who I, kind of wanted a picture with and I held back and and you looked at me like I'm sorry what's wrong with you you know go up there and say I I want my picture now and now and now I regret it but I I will pick up on something else you said which is it doesn't cost you anything to be nice to future colleagues to be nice to current colleagues and this is so true in the law and I try and explain it to my students too and 
in one case you're opposing counsel, in the next case you'll be co-counsel. Exactly. I mean, you never know when the person you're working alongside can turn out to be your boss at a future date. And so I think this is what's changed too a lot in the business. I know in my early years covering uh, presidential, being on the the pools, the presidential pools and so forth, women were often highly competitive with each other to the point of, of being nasty to each other back, I would say, a couple of decades ago. That's changed a lot in part because I think we realize we have to help each other up. We have we have to give each other a hand, and and I think um, I've seen I've seen just a major change. The women today, and and a lot of them younger women um, from the California Press Corps, are are really willing. Most of them are really willing to help each other out. And ter- we're still competitive, no doubt about it. There are people like. For instance, uh, Seema Mehta, uh, L.A. Times. I'm very competitive with her, but we are friends. I, I I think I respect her highly, and that goes with so many women in the California press corps. Uh, and and that's been a huge difference. We're now, in many cases, the majority of people in the newsroom. And uh, but I think yes, being being kind to people and being able to uh, be cooperative and helping them out when they need it. That's that's been, I think, a, a, a big difference. That's been a big a, a big rule for me, and I think it's worked. Um, it's still a very competitive business, though, and and you got to get the story first. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, I think Seema and I are a good example of that. We have we have tried to outrace each other so many times on stories, but we still love each other. Uh, I actually was lucky enough to organize a panel that you were both on, and. Uh, yes, you there, had great women. All so many great women on the panel, it, and there was yeah. nothing but mutual respect. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I, I guess this is where we say, um, Seema, if you want to come on for episode four or five, <laughs> we'd be happy to have you. Uh, yeah, and maybe, I'll be listening when this is all over. Not to be too stereotypical, but maybe you, me, and Seema will watch the show that at least I know is my favorite show and Seema's favorite show, which is Golden Girls. <laughs> That's. Definitely one of my favorite shows. Absolutely. So I, I was going to ask you, what's the first thing that you'll do once COVID-19 ends? But now I think I know the answer. So be at my house with me and Seema. Oh, that's Go- that, Golden that's, Girls. That is up there, watching Golden Girls. Uh, I, I think another one that was traveling. I mean, I just, yeah. uh, I, you know, I'm a big traveler and, uh, you know, I'm I, I want to go to, uh, Sib- I, I'm trying to go on to these, uh, Siberia, Trans-Siberian Express. That's my next <laughs> goal. That's my next on my bucket list, so to speak. So, um, uh, yeah, that is, uh, so that means this, this summer, um, my husband and I are going to be doing camping all over the place, but now we find out all the camping sites are gone in California because that's the only thing anybody can do. So, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, um, not only a germaphobe, but a a neurotic. And so for me, this is really an incredible moment. And so, you know, my version of uh, international travel is just getting gas in my car at this point. I mean, there, I, it's, it's very, it's very limiting, but I do hope uh, one of your trips will be down here to LA. Yes, absolutely. Totally. Somebody will murder us in our sleep. Yes. To see my youngest reader. Absolutely. I will do that. Um, Now, I want to transition a bit to you've been covering politics for 
a long time. You are, and don't laugh about it. I mean, you are one of the experts, if not the California political expert of our time. And to it's very kind is, of you. Well, um, what's it like being a member of the media in the Trump era? Wow. I mean, and I know I told this story at your class, but I have to say here's the covering Trump in the media in the Trump era is, I mean, there's no other way to say it. it's a mind blower in terms of the way things have changed. Uh, the story I was going to tell is I, I did cover Donald Trump back in uh, 1999 when he ran for president the first time. And in fact, I traveled with him and went on Trump one with him. Uh, he came to California. He was a, a candidate for the reform party. I'm just telling this story to, to, to sort of indicate how much things have changed on that trip to California. Donald Trump was a fun, like lively guy to hang out with. He invited me to go with him down to the tonight show and hang out with him and Jay Leno in the green room. And I watched them, you know, exchange jokes for an hour. You know, we went to Tony Robbins and one of his, you know, inspirational meetings, uh, we went to the Holocaust Museum. Uh, Melania Trump was with him at the time. She was just the girlfriend, not the wife. Uh, she just looked fabulous in her Manolos, you know, five-inch heels everywhere she went. But she never said a single word to us. Um, and I could see, I could definitely see the attraction in terms of he was a very charismatic guy at the close of that, um, at covering him, he actually sent me a personal letter on Trump stationery, which I don't think any politician has done in my lifetime saying basically, Hey, thank you for the fair story. And you can interview me anytime you want. Um, he, and he wrote that in his, in handwriting, even if you don't want to. So it showed me that, that Donald Trump, loved the media, really courted the media, wanted to be liked by the media back then. And so much has changed in the way uh, he and his administration have handled this now. Um, it, it's, it's, it's dangerous to cover a Trump event. It's sad to watch how um, my, my colleagues are being classified as enemies of the people. And the, the amount of, you know, railing about fake news and just just as we're speaking the president is tweeting about uh the fake media again he he loved the media he wanted to be covered by the media and he wanted to be friends with the media at one time that that's not the case anymore and it's made our jobs far more difficult not that we have to be friends with politicians but uh, to have access, to have, um, to not be threatened. That's, uh, that, that's the big change here. And I think, um, we're going to see how it develops going toward the election as these polls seem to be making him even more, um, just, just railing even more at the media as that happens, this, this becomes, this becomes, I'm very worried that we're going to actually see more attacks, more physical attacks, maybe even, um, attempts on people who cover the media and you know this is this has just been a a, a worry for those of us but it also it re relates to the 
access to information, Jessica, as you know, we've talked to you about this with regard to his taxes, with regard to what's happening in the Justice Department and um, so many other areas. Uh, uh, I, I feel like we, you know, that that's another aspect of covering Trump uh, that has changed in my lifetime in terms of uh, how many stories are out there and how many we can't get to. So do you feel worried for your safety as a member of the media? I mean, it, it seems to me that it used to be that you would hold up a press sign or your press pass, I should say. And that was kind of like a uh, protective gear in a way. Has yeah. that actually been thrown I think that, on its I, head? Yeah, I think that has changed. I mean, I covered one Trump presidential rally. This was the first time that anything like this had ever happened to me. Um, I, I got in through general with a general ticket, um, because the, t- the, the media access was very limited and I was there interviewing people in the crowd and, um, the Trump campaign people came up to me and said, you, you know, we're, we're going to be escorting you out because we have word that you have, you are threatening our rally. <laughs> and, I, and I said, what are you talking about? Um, and if I, uh, luckily I had, uh, a, 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 California Republican uh, Party official who I happened to be interviewing and she spoke up for me, Harmeet Dillon, at that rally and said, no, I, I know her, I, you know, but the fact is my my fellow political Politico uh, colleague was escorted out of that rally, could not report from it. Those kinds of things um, are are very, very troubling. And in terms of physical danger, I think more and more you're seeing reporters who are covering these events facing that kind of physical danger. And yes, that's very, very worrisome. So I I don't know how to transition from that because it is so (laughs) scary. And I mean, there's, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to make a joke as we move on to something that also worries me, which is it feels that Trump has been so, good at dominating the news cycle and essentially telling us, look over here, don't look over there, that it increasingly worries me that we're spending a lot of time looking at the shiny object behind door number one, but there's a lot happening behind door number two. So are there some big political issues that you wish you could cover, but there's just there's never time because of the relentlessness of the news cycle. I mean, I think one story that I would love to cover more, I lived in Mexico uh, for a couple of years. I studied at the university, uh, the national university of Mexico, Mexico city. And so I, I, this issue of immigration, I think what's happening in those immigration detention camps, the separation of children is still a largely uncovered story. And it's just been forgotten. It's an incredibly important story. What's happening uh, to immigrant families and children on the border. And yet it's getting no press or very little press considering everything else that's out there right now. We, it, it, it was an outrage for a while. It's just been completely forgotten. I think that's, that's a huge story that, that we need to cover. And then there's, you know, there's so much more related to the, to the COVID crisis, uh, which is being pretty much, put under the rug by, by, by the president at this point, he doesn't mention it in his tweets. He insists that, that, that everything is going fine at a time when this pandemic seems to be just booming in so many States. This is of huge import here in California as well. And 
there are many aspects of this uh, crisis that have to be covered. And I think you're right. The shiny object is out there every day with regard to tweets and what Don Jr. is doing, et cetera, and things that are really not that important. And, and, and we're missing a lot of aspects of it that we all need to get to. We are talking about what it's like to be a political reporter during the era of Trump. And I actually want to transition to another place, uh, which is California. And obviously, California, if it were its own country, would be, I think, uh, one of the very largest when you talk about population or the economy, I think fifth largest economy in the world. And one of the things that's fascinating to me, we were just talking about the um, COVID crisis and the fact that we're now living through a global pandemic is how much our governor, Gavin Newsom, really emerged quite early as a national figure. And I really don't know of any other reporter who knows more about Gavin Newsom than you. You've been covering him for how long now and since when? Um, I, I Because I was at the San Francisco Chronicle, I may be have covered um, Newsom longer than anybody else in California, I think. I've been covering since he was a parking and traffic commissioner in San Francisco uh, when he was first appointed. And then certainly as mayor, we covered him um, and and as lieutenant governor. So, yes, yeah, so we've been covering him for, for since his debut in politics. And it's been interesting to watch his development and his role right now in the country and and how people are looking at him as possibly a future presidential candidate. We got to say that. I mean, I think he did take on that role in the beginning as a, as a, as a leading figure in the COVID crisis. I think he still has that role. Uh, but, but he's certainly under probably the most challenged governor at this point in California history when it comes to handling that, the economic crisis that goes with it. Uh, it, this is going to be, and the kind of, um, uh, the kind of, uh, red, you know, the, the, the kind of budget, uh, challenge that he's got with that. So this is, uh, this is a moment, uh, for him and he's going to have to, uh, deal with so many things at one time. So when you first started covering him, did you think presidential candidate? Uh, no, I, we didn't. I mean, you know, he, he's always been kind of a policy wonk, but in the beginning he was a, a business guy or kind of a restaurant wine, you know, wine connoisseur kind of guy uh, on the social scene, married to Kimberly Guilfoyle. Remember? Uh, she's, That's right. Yeah. Now <laughs> yes. the girlfriend of Red, Donald Trump, Trump Jr. Jr. Right. And uh, um, they were, uh, you know, they were kind of a society couple. He has changed a great deal uh, in that time. Uh, that marriage lasted, I think, about four years. And now, uh, with his marriage to Jennifer Seibel Newsom and their four kids, you see a much different guy, a much different governor. Uh, and I think um, uh, he's he's been interesting to watch, but he's always had, I think, an eye for and, and sort of a feeling for issues that uh, matter very deeply to his constituents. I think one of his sort of defining moments uh, was it, as mayor of San Francisco in 2004 when he declared gay marriages uh, to be legal in that city. I remember people lining up, thousands of them, to get married uh, that March day when it happened. And it was a watershed moment. He was criticized nationally for that, but he did it anyway. And it turned out when he said 
you know, like it or not, uh, it's going to be the law of the land. People made fun of him, but he was correct on that. So, so that's the thing that is so fascinating to me about Gavin Newsom, and which is that he always seems to be about a quarter to a half step ahead of public opinion. So if you think about uh, gay rights, same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. uh, he did something that was at the time illegal, and it was clearly a political move, and he said, we're going for it. If you think about legalization of marijuana, right. the death penalty, gun control— it feels like his career in a lot of ways is defined by a comfort of pushing to where he thinks public opinion will eventually catch up with him. And then he'll say, look behind you. I've been here for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You named a number of the issues where he's been out front on. I think in all those cases, it was, they were risky political moves, but he took the move and, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch the next few years. You know, a lot will depend on who who is a, a, a Joe Biden's vice presidential uh, candidate. Whoever it is will likely be next in line or or have a very good shot at becoming uh, the next Democratic nominee. We'll see. But, I mean, look, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But the bottom line is <clears throat> Gavin Newsom has always been considered, especially lately, uh, to be somebody to watch on a national stage and the way he's conducted himself with regard to Trump is something that's very interesting. He has not, uh, d- he has not decided to uh, uh, get down in the muck with Trump, at least since the COVID pandemic began. And he has just decided to take a leadership role. It, it, you know, he's under the gun right now because of the increase again. Um, but the, definitely still somebody to watch. I, and this is something that you and I talked about, but I thought was so fascinating, which is President Trump was essentially not just telegraphing, but saying in the beginning of the COVID crisis, uh, I'm being nicer to governors who are nice to me. And Gavin Newsom threaded this really thin needle of still being the person who is leading the Trump resistance. I mean, we often joked about the idea that it's really California versus DC or vice versa. Um, but then also it, you know, trying to play that very delicate role of not insulting the president. You saw the president actually at times praising governor Newsom. That's right. Saying, you know, we think that he's handling it really well in California. And I always had the feeling that this is just savvy politics. He's doing what he can to get Californians their masks, uh, their ventilators, and he's not going to go back to being the leader of the resistance until we have our personal protective and medical equipment. No, absolutely right. He And he did exactly what he needed to do. He was under pressure from some Democrats to be tougher on Trump, and he just wouldn't go there. He, he would not go there. So at this point, um, California hasn't had a surge crisis at at the hospitals, um, but the issue still remains is how much money is California going to get out of the federal government when it comes to some of these issues and, and in the budget to help shut that close that budget shortfall, and he's going to have to continue to navigate Trump. Uh, Trump is now you know has his sights on California with regard to mail in voting. That's another area where Gavin Newsom has been out front and um, and said every Californian is going to get a mail ballot. 
and he's going to get a lot of pressure from uh, Trump saying, suggesting that uh, this is a rigged election in part because of what comes down in California. So, uh, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. So this is where I just can't help myself as someone who teaches election law. And let me just <laughs> pause for a moment and say to everyone, it is extremely safe to vote by mail. Let's say it again. It's extremely safe to vote by mail in a question between should I go to a polling place during a global pandemic or should I fill in this mail-in ballot? The answer is clear. There is no systemic voter fraud. This is a myth. Is there, in some cases, very rare voter fraud? Absolutely. Is it more likely to occur in those very rare cases when there's a vote by mail system, when it's an absentee ballot, yes. But the real fear here, and I, I'm really worried that this is becoming realized, is that people will just not participate. And I think that's part of the point, that people will just des decide to say, you know what, I can't weigh in this time at all. Um, registration numbers are plummeting. And so for anybody and everybody listening, hopefully it's more than just uh, Seema Mehta, who we talked about before, <laughs> and my mom, it's very safe to vote by mail. I promise I will not fill out your ballots. Those things simply don't happen on any sort of wide-scale basis at all. But um, I see where the clock is, and there's another California figure who's a national figure who you're an expert on. So before we wrap up, I do want to transition to Senator Kamala Harris. And when did you first start covering her? Yeah, we covered her um, as, a, as a DA in San Francisco. She was in Alameda County before that and uh, certainly covered her first race uh, for a district attorney. So we've been watching her also a long time. And it's been interesting to watch her whole trajectory. Uh, her Just in the last couple of weeks to watch the number of speeches you know, kind of memorable speeches she's given from the floor of the Senate. Uh, it's very clear she's she's campaigning now for that uh, VP role. And by most accounts, I think, looks to be the lead uh, player here. I think we'll see. But, uh, the, you know, there's, there's people in California have mixed views of her, mixed views of her role as district attorney and as attorney general in California. So she's gotten uh, criticism from progressives as well. And Criticism about how she ran her own presidential campaign, but the fact is, uh, at this point, her her name recognition is so high. She is a very strong communicator out there, and a very hard campaigner, and a good fundraiser. So all that puts her in uh, very high rankings as that the potential VP candidate. We'll see how that plays out, Jessica. Now, now, same same question that I asked about Gavin Newsom when you first started covering Kamala Harris, and she was a district attorney. Did you think I see a national profile for her? You know, she was always a very compelling, uh, interesting figure, uh, a, a, a very charismatic politician to follow. She's got her, her followers are, are absolutely religiously, you know, a religious zeal for her. Uh, and I think that was that was always there. She's always been, though, a very careful politician, somebody who who guards her self, uh, her, her personal life, and her statements very, very carefully. And that is, was one of the criticisms of her, uh, both as AG and DA and as a presidential candidate. So those are, those are some of the characteristics we've watched, yeah. 
it's, it's been interesting to watch her, her development over the years and now to think she could possibly be the next vice presidential candidate. It, are there any inside anecdotes that only somebody following Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris, as long as you have, would know that would give us some insight into who they are? Well, I think I think with Gavin Newsom, you know, he had some early, very big bumps in the in his political road. One of them being uh, an affair that he had uh, with the wife of one of his consultants. Uh, I think that attending the, a press conference the day after those headlines hit, and watching him address a room full of reporters and say everything you re- you've read about is true. Um, was a, was a, a revealing moment. He did not try to hide from that hugely damaging story. He admitted his faults. He's had to ask, answer those questions. Even now, when he ran for governor, I had to ask him about that story again, and I could you can tell he is pained by the story and says uh, the damage that he did to his relationship with his uh, his good friend, his consult the consultant, and to the woman involved is something that he can never get over. But uh, at the, that, I think that was one of the more revealing um, moments in his career, and he has, I think, gotten over it in the sense of his current, his family situation now, his wife, who he is clearly in love with, his children, who have been a big part, and to watch um, on his inauguration day, his little two-year-old son, Dutch, running into his arms, and him- I deliver- remember that. Yeah, and he's delivering the speech with the boy in his arms, just- just kind of showed um, uh, how he's turned the page there and, and how, what a different governor he, he was going to be from Jerry Brown or any other governor probably that we've seen in recent times. Um, so he's brought that young family consideration into it. And I think that that's probably something that a lot of Californians welcome. I did think that that was a revealing moment when he scooped his young son up, particularly now that so many of us are working from home, we're on zoom calls uh, we're not only full-time work from home employees, but we're also full-time early yeah. education teachers. And um, I thought it really did say a lot. I mean, either I don't know him, so either it was fantastic political instincts or it was great paternal instincts. Yeah. But he did just decide, um, I'm not going to throw this kid at a parent or a handler, you know, we're going to do this together. And yeah. And he talks regularly um, when he talks about the COVID crisis, talks regularly about how his kids are reacting to it, how they're, they're very sad that they can't play with their friends. Um, I think that's kind of personal things. Sometimes he, he, he speaks quite, you know, kind of intimately about um, the way they're dealing with it. So I, I think all that has been fascinating to watch, and, and it's something we haven't seen in a governor in a long time, uh, a governor with very young children in the office. That's that's something a lot of Californians relate to. I, it is so, I mean, it's such a lesson in your lawmaker's personal experience will affect their job, or your chief executive's personal experience will affect their job. So we're, I think we're going to talk a lot more about early education than we otherwise would if you had an elderly governor like Governor Brown with no kids. And I mean, this just this shows up in the law where you have judges, depending on their background, can understand what's happening in a case in a different way. Um, but it it will be interesting to look at two people who you are experts on Governor Gavin Newsom and Senator Kamala Harris and see, you know, if we were to do a looking back at the first year of passing judgment episode, 
where would they be? It would be fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. That is why his time in office is something to watch for that consideration of young children and families. And he's really made that part of what he's done. He's going to be judged on a lot of that too. And I think this COVID crisis is going to come into it, how, how people come out in terms of the schools and how, ter- how, how it comes out in terms of how many young people it affects in the state. So I think he's very much aware of that. We're here with Carla Marinucci on the Passing Judgment podcast, and we're going to end with what I hope is a fun way of learning a little bit about our guest, even though we learned a lot about you which is to ask the same three questions of everyone. And the first is, this is one of my mom's favorite questions. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party? All right. I thought about this a little bit and I came up with, I think, I think Sakajiwa. Sakajiwa is like the most badass woman in American history, as far as I'm concerned. When you talk about somebody who, at age 16, traveled thousands of miles on the Lewis and Clark expedition with her baby, you know, at her breast and basically, you know, opened up the entire West of the United States. They would never have made it out alive had it not been for her. She doesn't get the credit she needs, but can you imagine hearing those stories from her? I think she might be one of the women I would most love to talk to and interview at a dinner party. That makes complete sense. Everything I know about you, <laughs> uh, I would love to sit next to you while you did that interview. <laughs> and uh, now, next, yes. you're stranded on a desert island. And you can order, <laughs> Amazon Fresh is allowing you to order <laughs> just one meal to be delivered. What is it? I mean, I grew up in a pizzeria. Uh, my kids just got me a wood-fired pizza oven, and I say, pizza. What? A, what? Wood-fired pizza, and it has to be good Sicilian pizza. I'm sorry, no, no, no cheap stuff. So anyway, that's that's where I'd go. That's my that's my home. That's my comfort food. So there, there you, you are. Go. You are a pizza connoisseur. I will say that. I'm glad I never tried to serve that to you. I would have really had some anxiety. Um, last question. You get one superpower for an hour. I think I go with time travel uh, because if you only have one hour, well, you know, it's time travel. Then you can have it for as long as you want. <laughs> oh, my God. You, you broke che- the code. You I'm cheated cheating. the system. That I'm is cheating. genius. <laughs> there we go. That is – I I really don't even know what to say. That is so – what a brilliant way. Of, and, then, and then, of course, we could go back and, you know, talk to a lot of historical figures that we need to interview. <laughs> so there. We could have a whole library of time travel interviews. Yes. So here's a place where people can read a lot of great interviews, find out what's happening in California, the California Political Playbook. Will you tell us how we can sign up for it? It arrives in my inbox every day. I read it, I shouldn't say cover to cover, but top to bottom. I scroll through. How can <laughs> Thank we? You. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate that, Jessica. Yeah, our, our California Playbook and Politico uh, is, is, gets in your inbox daily. Just Google uh, Politico California Playbook. It'll pop up and we have a subscription. It's free. You can get it in your inbox daily. So yeah, Google Politico California Playbook and it's yours. We'll put you on the list. 
All right. Be an insider in California and uh, get the California Politico playbook. I'm shamelessly plugging this because <laughs> I'm a you. big fan. I appreciate and it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carlo Marinucci, for being one of our very first guests. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for your time. You're one of my favorite people in the world. So I'm so happy. To thank, thank you, Jessica. Thank you for listening to Passing Judgment. Please check out our other episodes. See you next time.